everyone, Shannon Tipton here, and welcome to the Learning Rebels Coffee Chat, where all the cool L&D peeps hang out. While you're here, don't forget to hit the subscribe button so you don't miss out on future chats. Today, the cool kids are discussing collaborative learning. Collaborative learning is like a potluck dinner, where everyone brings a unique dish and shares the story behind that dish, helping us learn a little bit about different cultures. Now with collaborative learning, each person brings their unique knowledge and experiences to the table to share while learning from the stories of their peers. The end result is a shared feast of ideas and insights leading to a richer, more satisfying learning experience. Now there have always been mixed messages about collaborative learning. In school, when we collaborate, it may be called cheating but in the workplace, it's about getting things done. Now, as funny as that may seem, for a variety of reasons, there are still organizations that do not overtly support collaboration as a whole. They may talk a good game, but actions speak louder than words. For example, is there an overall resistance to change? If so, collaboration may not be on the forefront. Perhaps leadership doesn't encourage collaboration and in fact could be actively against it. Do you have an old school hierarchical structure in place where collaboration is difficult because everyone is listening to the hippo in the room, meaning the highest paid person's opinion? Or perhaps your organization unconsciously supports unhealthy competition. These are all red flags when it comes to collaboration within an organization. So therefore, the big question on the table today is, how can L&D nurture and strengthen collaborative learning efforts and better facilitate participants learning from each other? So without further ado, let's get to it. Pete, I'm just really happy to see you here. Pete owns a company called Learny, L-E-A-R-N-I-E. And I've mentioned it before in this group. And this is wildly understating this app, which is kind of like video. It's like TikTok for learning, you know, only in a community way, you know, and. I think that's pretty accurate, Shannon. Is it? Okay. I didn't want to undervalue. Um, your software and then he walks away and he's like Shannon that would be wrong that would be rude and wrong the reason we are here today big question on the table today is all about collaborative learning and helping participants learn from others how can we help do that and I think that it's appropriate for Pete to be here, being that your software is all about, you know, building that collaborative space and helping people learn from each other, especially from video. So your insights, I'm sure, will be valuable here. Andrew, always good to see you as well. Thank you. Is that a different background? Or no, it's a different way of looking at you, isn't it? I happen to have a bigger microphone now. <laughs> I'm sorry, I could not hear you because you were doing like an SNL voice. I happen to have a bigger microphone now. That's all it is. Bigger microphone. You need to turn the volume up on your microphone, my friend. How about now? Is that better? No. No? Okay. How high do you want the gain? Oh, there we go. We can hear you now. That's funny. So now we've got like a cell phone commercial going on. So we have all the things <laughs> happening this morning. It is a Friday. I spent yesterday doing my taxes. I don't know about the rest of you, where you guys are at, but that's how I spent my day yesterday. So I'm really happy to be here with everybody here today. Benita, it's good to see you. Yes, hello. And as I started to say, collaborative learning, learning from each other. And the blog post that I put out earlier this week was all about knowing that in order to set up this collaborative culture, whether it be in the workplace or in the classroom, hinges on psychological safety. And we had a really good, robust conversation about psychological safety 
a couple of coffee chats ago. And I thought that this is a nice adjunct conversation to have. If we say now that we've got a psychological safety net in place to a certain degree, and people feel as though I can contribute, I feel like my voice is being heard. Now, there are other barriers that get in the way of helping people learn from each other, not only in the classroom, but within the workplace. What I would like to discuss is what are your experiences, suggestions, wisdom, techniques around building this collaborative culture classroom and where we can, because we do not own a collaborative culture within the workplace. So let's get that out of the way, right? I think we can all agree on that, is that we don't own that. And it's not anything that we can control. And a lot of times it's completely out of our control. You know, but what can we do to create impact and influence is the other way to think about this. Who would like to start the conversation here? When you took a look at the list, let's start here. When you took a look at the list of barriers that I listed on that blog post, was there something that resonated with you as like, oh, yes, that right there, I see that happening all of the time. And not necessarily you don't have to reference the blog post, but what are the barriers that you're seeing? Where would you like to start with that? Who would like to start, I guess I should say. Well, I'll start with the biggest one and probably the one that we hit the most is the resistance to change. They always want us to tell them things, but not pull it from them or Mm -hmm. not get them to share with each other. Mm -hmm. So it's like, tell me the answer. Right. But I always find what the funny part is, is once you start getting them talking, they realize they've been doing this their whole life in teaching each other and showing each other how to do things and sharing best practices. They just never had any structure around it. Mm -hmm. I completely agree with that. So what's the structure? Well, that depends on the location. Sometimes it is creating a place on like Microsoft Teams where they can ask questions of each other, you know, start creating a knowledge base through that or just creating a a checklist. Here's the things as a new hire that this person needs to learn. And then this is your team and your team is going to show you these things and learn that way. Or just simply asking a question and not responding to the question and making them, Mm -hmm. you know, answer the questions and just staring at them the whole time. Like, I I like what you're doing with us. (laughs) I do take advantage of the pause. It pauses your friend a lot of times. But I like that. And I think absolutely resistance to change. Does anybody else feel that? What are your thoughts around resistance to change? Not only in the classroom, but in the workplace, because it is a, when you think about creating a culture of collaboration within the workplace, that's a big change initiative. So not only doing changing the way that we operate from a learning perspective, but also operating how we work together. So is that something that you are experiencing seeing as well? One thing that I've seen very often, regardless of what kind of change it is, it's always the fear, the fear of the unknown, the fear of perhaps misstepping and having a perception out there of making themselves, for lack of better words, look stupid, the fear of making a public mistake. And then you get into the whole realm of, well, mistakes are a part of the learning curve, And the only way that I have found that helps combating that is actually talking about like what you have to go through for growth and learning. You have to get outside your comfort zone and what that means. Just from an individual contributor or even an individual learner level, fear I have seen is a big human factor that drives a lot of folks to stop collaborating. But then that's where that psychological safety net can help buffer and be a protective mechanism against that. I like that. And I think you've hit upon something when you talk about articulating to the participants what learning not only means, but what it feels like. Learning should feel a little uncomfortable. It should, you know, hurt your brain a little bit. If it doesn't, then are you stretching, right? It's it's another muscle. There's a graphic I often refer to that really helps folks that aren't in the learning area, but it's the comfort zone 
zone of like fear where you're stuck, then it's learning and then growth mm-hmm. where it's going from the inside out. But the only way you can get to that learning is moving through the zone of fear. Oh, that's interesting. If you could find that, I would love to see that. Yeah, I'll find it and throw it in the chat. Thank you. I think I've had some competing thoughts while we've started this morning. But when I was listening to Amanda talk, I think that she has touched upon something that then becomes extremely oxymoronic for us in the workplaces. And it is that idea that learning is supposed to be uncomfortable. But I don't know if this is this isn't known. I think it's known to us, but it's not known, nor do I think it's maybe potentially embraced in a lot of spaces, you know, so I'm thinking, and I'm speaking out of turn, I've not worked um, with this individual, but he's an easy target. Elon Musk doesn't create a culture where I think failure or that idea of like, you can be uncomfortable if you're going to be learning, because it's always then about excelling, exceeding, and perfecting. And I think then if you're in spaces where that's the company's perspective, then we have this competition between people feeling like they have safety in being able to make mistakes or ask questions or even admitting, I don't know that, or I haven't experienced that yet, especially as we continue to work with learners who are higher up in a hierarchical structure, as I think I I saw Maureen throw something into the chat. And so I think that then becomes maybe a huge disincentive for collaborative learning between one another. I agree. It's that fear, right? It's the fear of retribution. It's kind of an insecurity for yourself too. If you don't feel as though you are as good as the people who are in the, in the group, you know, then I think that that's a hindrance as well. So I think you bring up a really good point there. So thank you. I'll go now to Andrew. And then I see you, Pete. I was trying to figure out how to raise my hand. So, Well, Zoom recognized that for you. It did. It actually yes, recognized it when I just raised my hand. <laughs> It'll do that. <laughs> Andrew. So I think that there's two questions here. Let's go back to the fear of change thing. I don't think people fear change. I think people fear what they lose as a result of change. And that's slightly Ooh. different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, some people we actually look forward to change. So we make an assumption that change is bad. Okay. And that's not the case. Change will be driven by what a person perceives they will lose. So for the person who will lose authority, the person will lose being the most knowledgeable person in the room. They won't want to share, for example. So they will lose the being labeled as the expert or whatever the thing happens to be. So we need to understand what people will fear they will lose as a result of change happening. So that's one part of it. Second part is we need to roll back a bit and actually be entirely clear. What do we mean by collaborative? The paper that you referenced in your blog was really, really interesting. And I've read it before. But what frustrates me about it is they disregard the difference between cooperative and collaborative. And those two things are very different. Right. We can all cooperate but we will not be collaborating. And the thing that makes collaboration different is that there is a shared objective. So people collaborate towards completing a shared objective. People don't cooperate for a shared objective. They cooperate for their own personal objective. So again, something we need to be clear on here, which is in terms of language and what we're trying to to make happen is, do you want people to cooperate or do you want them to collaborate? If you want them to collaborate, well, then that shared objective has to be something bigger than just the learning activity because reference back fear of change or fear of what people lose we need to be entirely clear what every person is expecting to get from this learning activity or performance or whatever it happens to be so why is it difficult to get people to collaborate everybody has a different objective people fear what they're going to lose yes as i was writing that blog post i started to get into the differences between cooperative learning and collaborative learning and then i realized i was writing an ebook Got to pull it back. But you're absolutely right. There is a difference between the two. I like where you went with that, where it's a fear of losing. So we have to somehow coalesce that, don't we? We have to bring that in. And then we also have to tackle the big purpose, right? So what's the big purpose of all of us being here? So are you saying then, if we talk about collaborative learning in general, that the big purpose here that people should be collaborating on 
outside of a lesson, but is it the bigger learning initiative of why they're there to start with? This is where we get learning objectives wrong. What we try and do is we try and coalesce people around the learning objectives. Right. And we make that the collaboration activity. But that's not the reason why people go to a learning event or complete a learning activity. They do that because they have a performance objective or they have a gap in knowledge or they have something that isn't described by our learning objective. And when we try and bring people to the learning objective, well, then they'll push back from that because that's not what I want. I want it to know is how to do this better. Right. So then that becomes the collaboration point. So the collaboration point should be outside of the room. The collaboration point should be something performance related. And we should be trying to bring people together around the performance, not around the learning. So to want people to collaborate in the learning environment, make sure that you've got a performance objective you can bring people to. That's really interesting because that could shift, that shifts the dynamic. Entirely. What it does, it takes away the accountability from the facilitator or the designer to the individuals. So the individuals become accountable for the performance. The role of the facilitator is responsibility to bring that about. But we have to do that only when we've established what the shared objective is or that everybody can agree on what a shared objective is in terms of performance. So you do that bit first. It makes it easier to get people to collaborate because you want this session to run well because of X. I want it to run well because of Y. Well, actually, X plus Y together is one thing. So let's collaborate around Z. And that's the thing that will then make you happy and make me happy. I like it. Welcome to my head. And welcome to my head. (laughs) It's always good stuff happening in your head, though, Andrew. Thank you for that perspective. I would like to jump over to Pete and see what Pete has to say. One of the things we see when we roll out our technology is that the ability or desire to collaborate seems sort of generational. Right. And we're not really sure why that is yet. We've sort of been assuming, as Shannon said, our, it's a very TikTok like experience creating content in our platform. So we've been saying, well, you're the younger generation. They're used to creating Instagrams and TikToks. So they adapt very quickly to that versus someone my age might be a little intimidated. You know, as I hear, listen to you, Andrew, I, I guess I'm thinking maybe it also has to do with. Someone who's older, who's been in the position longer, who's a subject matter expert might have much more to lose than someone who's 22 years old on the job. And so we, ha- we have an odd situation where the people with the most knowledge, the subject matter experts that we actually want to capture the knowledge from are often the most, um, they're not resistant, but they're harder to, to get to just go create content on their own versus the people who know the least will often jump in and they're sharing all kinds of stuff that the administrators have to go delete. But I mean, I've been assuming it's somewhat generational, but maybe it's not. Maybe it has to do with, I've got something to lose. Very well could be. It could be a combination of both, right? When you think about fear, fear encompasses a lot. So there's a fear of putting myself out there and feeling as though, again, I'm not good enough or what I have to say is not good enough. And then that fear of, like Andrew said, and I, I do believe that that is definitely the case in a lot of areas, is that some people hold information so close to their vest because it's a control mechanism. You know, so if I know it and you don't know it, I'm in control of my department, my destiny, my career, what have you. You know, right. so I think that there's a lot to say about that. Maureen. Yeah, thank you. I had put in the chat, and this is building on what Andrew had said about having a shared objective for collaboration. And I just recall years ago being in something where they said, kind of what's at the top of your life's to-do list, because that's how you prioritize like your time. And there was always this struggle between like, you know, when I was going into something as an instructional designer, the amount of my priorities and what I was kind of measured on or compensated against was around, you know, having this training. And and at my to-do list was also like, I wanted to balance raising my children to be good citizens with, you know, putting in a fair day's work and working with others. But I was working with people who the top of their to-do list was to kind of have a trajectory and be promoted, you know, so they wanted to be seen and have visibility in front of higher ups and have that they wanted to be seen. And so they weren't going to do anything that they weren't going to challenge maybe the people who are higher up because that may have been their boss one day kind of mm-hmm. thing. And so, mm-hmm. so just what I found helpful was to level set that kind of from the beginning as you're forming a team 
and with that trust to kind of gauge how much of a priority is working on maybe this project for them versus me. And they may have been willing to work like nights and weekends, you know, for a shorter time to get something out versus I was like, I wanted quality and shelf life and the whole thing. So it's about getting that out there and reconciling that from the beginning so that it does become a shared objective. It's just that it may be a heavier lift for some versus others. It's not like it's everybody's equally contributing towards that collaboration, but that everybody will kind of put in, if you kind of find that sweet spot of that shared objective, just based on all the different perspectives, what that needs to look like. And it may not be the same as like what was put out there as like the project goal or whatever, but that's how you can just build off of one another's strengths. And so it's a pleasant interaction for everyone that they learn that they don't have to hold on to everything themselves that they can share. It's going to make them look even better, you know, in the eyes of those higher up. So it's finding out their motivation, I guess, for being somewhere and helping them get there. Right. So before I put my, ask any additional questions or put my thoughts in, I'll turn it over to Andrew first. Maureen actually called it spot on because what happens is organizations then go, well, this is all about our values. And so what we do is we try and create a shared objective by producing our organization aims, goals, values, and so on. So what happens is that then becomes the common line at the top. We assume everybody is working towards that, but it's not. Organizations set that as an expectation, but it doesn't mean we meet it. And people need smaller objectives than that. A big value, a big aim is too big. It doesn't relate to me as an individual. How do we level set that then? People come in in a workplace or class, right? They have different points of view. They have different experiences. They have different motivations and different reasons in general. Like you said, Maureen, higher priorities, lower priorities. So now how do we, or can we even level set this so everyone does feel as though we're working on this together. How do we do that? I think part of it is, I mean, when you put it out there, you have to ask, don't assume that we all think the same thing when we look at like, even if it's the company values, like there needs to be some time spent to just like say, well, what does that mean to you? And what does that mean to you? What does that like, you know, again, I know sometimes we have to go slow to go fast. If you do that, that's how you're also building trust. You're getting to know other people. You're getting to learn more about their perspective we challenge then our own perspective because that's not maybe how we looked at it. So it's about, you know, just creating that psychological safety and it may be little ways and incremental ways, but don't assume that it exists. <laughs> right. That's something that we do. And Andrew, who touched on this point earlier, is that we come into this as L&D people believing that everybody thinks like this. And no, and even within our own group, within our own industry, not everybody thinks like this. And so now it's, we have a, a paradigm from which to break. So I think that that's, that's really interesting. I'll go to Erica. I was listening to Maureen talk and I think it's so spot on because of this idea that just because there are company values or a, a vision, a mission that everybody interprets that exactly the same way. And when I was listening to Maureen, it was reminding me of when I was sitting in on a leadership development course, like developing a leadership program and the idea around you create competencies, you know, even in like your cultural values. So, you know, if your higher ups are perceiving their values in a particular way, but if they aren't able to articulate, well, what is the competency around this? What does it look like when we say perfection? Or what does it look like when we say inspiration? then people are going to bring in their own um, perspectives, their own philosophies. And then what you do is you have this stacking and you have then everybody who, again, when Andrew was talking about the difference between cooperation and collaboration, you are perceiving that you have people in the same room, whether physically or virtually, that, well, of course, we're all on the same page, but you know, these are huge assumptions that we're bringing to the table, even for the business goals, because if we haven't received guidance 
from those who've created those set of values on what they think it looks like, then no, we're all going to bring our own independent perspectives of that to the table. And then you can naturally have clashing there. Which I think that's something you you kind of have to get out of the way. I think that clashing is almost natural. You know, when you get a group of people together, there's going to be a power struggle of some sort. Who's going to do the talking? Who's going to do the listening? Who's the expert? Who's not the expert? And people are always trying to sort themselves out inevitably within a group. And that's just because we're humans. That's just what we do. So then I think the conversation becomes around how can we create that space that allows people to feel all on that level playing field after everything shifts out. And Stella, I saw your comment here about putting the focus on the subject matter expert, which I think is a great technique to use. And so I'd, I'd like for you to expand on that if you wouldn't mind. In fact, um, when I do the online training for, for the company, no one has time. Of course, they need to share their knowledge. And I try to convince them with all kinds of uh, arguments that um, the management is also doing the online trainings and you will have the power to check all the data. I won't release anything with your release signature and you will do the talking in the video you know your photo will be there you will be the great star i make you shine and you show your competency and once one of my colleagues he said i don't have time i don't want to do it then i said well you know everyone is watching you'll be the master in your area everyone will recognize you and then he said okay i'm doing it but then uh, we did one video and we were supposed to do two more and he couldn't speak. He had a sore throat. He said, I do it tomorrow. I do it. And I said, well, no, now we have a deadline. <laughs> Unfortunately, now we have to finish it. You did one. I will do the rest to finish this project. You know, only if there's an emergency and I have to meet the deadline, Otherwise, they won't share their knowledge. They keep hiding everything. That's always a big problem. What do you think is the core behind that, Stella? What do you, what do you think is the driver? Well, sharing knowledge, everyone knows, so they are no longer needed by the, the company. You know, everyone needs to save money. And so if you reveal all your knowledge, you're useless. Right. And I think that there's a lot of truth to that. And I don't know if that's, I'd be interested on your thoughts. Uh, I don't know if that's generational. Is that the human condition? We need to feel needed on some level, some more than others. It's also the mentality in your head. I have one colleague, when I make a proposal, she starts typing everything. And at the end of the meeting, we have a document. And other people... They don't take a decision. They want to talk and have a meeting and discuss and tell me they don't have time. I think it's more to do whether you can take decisions quickly and contribute and others, they are not flexible in their minds to take quickly decisions. Mm -hmm. It has nothing to do with age. It's more your mental flexibility. With some of my colleagues, I have to go very, very slow and others, I can go faster, but I think it has nothing to do with age. It's the uh, mental flexibility. I agree with you. Thank you for clarifying that. I, I do agree with you. And I saw Amanda's hand. I was just going to reiterate that there's there's a number of factors. Even the chat captures that about culture. Culture has a huge play. Mm -hmm. If you have an unsafe, highly competitive cutthroat culture, Folks aren't going to want to share information because in a cutthroat culture, what you have, your cards, that's your livelihood. But if you are in a culture that has been that has been established to be knowledge sharing, to be collaborative, where it's like it's safe to share and you're not necessarily making yourself obsolete or unrelevant, but the focus goes from me, myself, and I and very egocentric and I need to survive here to 
we become better. It becomes, we are going towards this together. We are not competing against each other. We are helping each other make this further step beyond. And that's where I have seen like that focus on the SME switch from a, from those that are really entrenched in academic research and, and the light is shined upon them and it creates a very unfavorable, unsafe place for people to feel safe to share something because here's someone that's speaking maybe graduate school level versus plain language, eighth grade Mm -hmm. level, and your audience is somewhere in between. The language you use can really either support what you're trying to do or not support what you're trying to do. But there's so many things that can be at play of having folks want to or not want to. Yes. What you said, Amanda, goes directly back to where Andrew started which is the fear of losing something. So when you have this ultra competitive culture, and I've worked in those cultures before, and it's definitely not for me, but I've, I've been there. And when they're afraid of giving up their secret sauce, because that means I'm going to lose commissions or somebody's going to encroach on my territory, you know, or it's attached to bonus then there's definitely a fear of losing something extrinsic. Absolutely. Now, this is just the psych and nerd in me going off. So bear with me for a moment. There are certain biological mechanisms that are at play. So if we have fear, adrenaline, cortisol is going in our system. That's a fight, flight, freeze, collapse thing. And that is detrimental to learning. That stops learning in its path because what that does to our visual is focused on one or two things right in front of you. You lose your peripherals. But this new theory, broaden and build theory of positive emotions contributed to positive psych from Dr. Barbara Fredrickson. It looks at positive emotions, unlike negative emotions, have an upward spiral. Negative emotions have a downward spiral. Emotions happen before thought and action. So when emotions occur, if you are going to feel fear, that's automatically going to restrict what you're seeing. But if you can induce a positive affective state in your learning environment, what it does is it broadens your perspective. So if you, for lack of better analogies, if you think of like blinders on a horse, when you're in a negative perspective, you're looking straight forward you're looking straight in front of you. You see one or two options. When you are in a more neutral affect, it's maybe at a 45 degree angle. You might see three to five options. But when you're in a positive affective state, synergy never happens when people are in a negative emotional state. If you just take a quick stab at when you were in a real synergy collaborative state, nobody was in a negative emotional state. They may have been neutral, but hey, oh, this is fun. Let's contribute. Your blinders drop off and you have a 180 degree perception in front of you. And you might see five, six, seven, eight options. There's been visual things that have identified this, and this goes just to resource collecting. We collect more resources when we are in that positive affective state. So if we can do what we can to build that safe, more positive environment in a learning space, you're going to help folks be more predisposed to a better positive experience and taking something with them if the environment is activating a less favorable emotional state, learning is just going to kind of stop dead in its tracks. I don't know how I can follow that up. (laughs) Thank you for contributing that. And I'm going to have to, I've always used the terms about looking through a lens of positive and negative, right? So people have this natural, and I think it is natural perspective right? So either you look through things in a positive state or a negative state, or in your case, as you said, a neutral state. And I like that. You put it so eloquently. So thank you for contributing to the conversation like that. I really appreciate it. Katie, I see you. Yeah, I was going to essentially echo what Amanda was saying in terms of how culture can be a big part of collaborative learning in general, and whether or not people share information. I definitely think knowledge is power. And I like what someone said before that it can be a mechanism for control. I've worked in uh, company cultures where people like to withhold knowledge as a way of being kind of competitive, of being, you know, Mm -hmm. I have the information, but I've also worked in wonderful company cultures where it has been really collaborative. And I think some of the traits around that certainly was a psychological safety, but I've also found that they're a lot more innovative because people are coming together to bring ideas 
And again, for that kind of being able to define the common goal, but it's really wonderful where there is that intentional relationship between the people in the room. You know, you, you are able to brainstorm off each other and kind of there are no necessarily bad ideas. People can kind of take it, you know, okay, well, what if we do this? What if we do that? On the other end, I would say too, you know, one thing I've experienced in other company cultures is also, I think the difference between two, like being a very perfectionist culture, you know, people are again, afraid to share knowledge or they feel like they have to have it the full product, as opposed to have worked in company cultures where it is again, a lot more focused on let's brainstorm together. Let's create something together. So yeah, I definitely agree. I actually, and I hope you don't mind. I actually have a question based off of what Amanda said about fear and about how that can you know, be a blinder. It made me think about the model that I think Amanda had shared earlier, where she said that you have to go through fear to go to like the growth zone. But then we also know that fear inhibits learning. So I'm curious how we can, as people who facilitate learning, like what is that sweet spot essentially of people have to go through fear to get to growth, but in the same regard, fear can make people even more shut down to learning. So how do we get people through that fear? It's two sides of the same coin. You know, they're afraid to move forwards. We have to push people through. But if they're afraid to move through, now what? That link I sent in the um, chat actually had a bell curve of anxiety and how there's like an optimum level. Like if you get just enough, it's good. Get too much, people go into panic. You don't get enough, people are bored. (laughs) It's probably really going to depend on the audience. If you're working with folks that are in a high stress environment normally, like those that are frontline EMTs, those that are police officers, they may need a higher level of activation to get to that optimum learning spot versus those that may not experience day-to-day things where their optimum is a higher level of functioning. So it might be based on Mm -hmm. who's in your audience. Right. I do think there's a lot to be said about knowing your audience. And we Do not put enough emphasis on that as a whole because we treat a learning event as a one-size-fits-all, right? So we bring everybody into it, we treat everybody the same, and we hope everybody leaves being the same. And people just aren't like that. We should, in my opinion, I think that's one way, is really having a stronger understanding of who is sitting in the chairs, who's sitting around you, and how is that representative of the overall organizational culture, right? Because who's in the chair is the culture. And so if we don't have a strong understanding of our own organizational culture and how the organization operates, we're going to fail within the classroom in of itself because we're operating from two environmental perspectives. And those two things are going to clash. I'd like to get some other people's opinions here. So Erica, I see you on Katie's question. We've been trying to discuss in general, like, okay, it's not one size fits all. You know, we we need to be able to customize learning events and learning experiences. And yet something just flew through my brain and about this idea of like, and when you're saying, Shannon, you know, who's in the room and I'm like, Was there ever a point where we all thought that having a very varied audience that spanned the spectrum of knowledge, skills, and abilities inside of a singular learning event was supposedly going to be collaborative? Oh, those that know less will learn from those that know more. It raised my like, wow, that's kind of interesting. Like, so did that somehow at one point thought to be a good idea? Because then you're not isolating newer individuals from more experienced individuals. And now it's turned into the, you know, double-headed monster of, but now we've created an idea that it's one size fits all. We're going to try to stick this spectrum of knowledge, skills, and abilities inside of a singular learning space. And we're going to somehow magically impact all of them equally at the same time. And I don't know, I don't have a big thought on that other than that was just something that occurred to me. And I'm like, wow, I like, now I have this need to want to know this historical perspective. And did that become a response or an idea of like, oh, how do we create a collaborative environment? However long ago that was. And now it's like, look like it kind of blows up in our face sometimes Mm -hmm. because 
now we're attempting to handle everybody exactly the same. And we're thinking that they're going to carve out their own ability, but we're not focusing on, but are they here? Are they here? Are they here? Yeah. From my perspective and experiences where that originally stemmed from was because of what Andrew wrote in the chats, that sheep dip approach. So how we excused having experienced people in the same class as non-experienced people was saying, well, the experienced people will get something out of this because we're going to buddy them up with a less experienced person, right? And that was our excuse or reasoning behind throwing all these people into one class together because we said that they would help each other. And it kind of made us sleep better at night, even though the participants aren't necessarily sleeping better at night. And I think that when you think about the fear, right, that fear, I don't know if that's helpful. You know, and that's, again, just me thinking out loud. I don't know if that's helpful when we put new people in a room with experienced people, because with some folks that will encourage them to rise up. Other people, it might encourage them to sit back. And if we want people to actually come together, is this the best way? I don't know the answer to that. And that's, I'm kind of throwing that out as the question to the group to continue to build on Katie's question. I'm curious now. I'm curious too, you know, going back all the way back to definitions as well and being really clear about what do we mean when we say certain things. I'm curious too now in terms of what do we mean when we say fear as part of an initial reaction to a new learning intervention? You know, I'm curious essentially if there's a different way of framing too, you know, that maybe it's a little bit more of uncomfortable versus or anxiety. Part of that. Yeah, exactly. Because I think anxiety too can also be excitement. There can be other layers to that, but I'm just curious too, in terms of, again, thinking through this dichotomy a little bit and trying to blend it of, you know, fear can inhibit learning, but yet you have to have a certain level of, you know, that sweet spot of fear to be able to be engaged in learning and engaged and wanting to learn more. So I'm curious if it's almost a little bit of like a yeah, nervous system activation or, or some other way of framing what that experience is internally to get that perfect level of engagement that also kind of deals with a little bit of uh, discomfort. Mm-hmm. Well, you know what? I'm going to kick this back over to Jason. That's sort of where we started. Sort of, yeah. So what are your thoughts right now about what Katie just asked or anything in general? Well, I think going to what Erica said and then what you said, Shannon, about, you know, we have this great idea. Oh, we'll put everybody together. And and then I put in the, in the chat there, it really depends on how we engage, how we involve those with the experience and how we engage them with the newer people. How do we divide up those classes? How do we just define who has the experience? Do we mm-hmm. test them first and say, yes, you have the knowledge and the, the skill. So now, okay, how do we make it so that you're sharing that with them? And as the facilitator, we're facilitating that experience rather than leading the experience. Mm-hmm. I've in probably the last 15 years, I've not been the subject matter expert in anything that I've taught. So I've always brought in those people to share their knowledge or actually teach the step-by-step things and answer the what-if questions and just come in just, all right, class, this is Eddie. Here's all your questions for Eddie. And Eddie would just sit up there or class would ask a question, like turn to Eddie, Eddie, this is your chance. <laughs> Giving the spotlight, you know, as we said before, to the subject matter expert mm-hmm. to be that person. You know, do we break them up into small groups and say, okay, you five experienced people are going to lead these five small groups. Here's the project. Here's the thing, you know, work to that, you know, that ultimate goal of what <laughs> you need to learn. And your performance in the class is based on how well your group does. Mm -hmm. Could be, right? And I, Maureen, Eddie sounds like he's on the dating game. And Eddie was a real person that I did this to, and he loved it. (laughs) Eddie, right. But it, it also goes to, you know, Andrew's point. There are a lot of subject matter experts who there's just no, just, yeah. just no. So again, it's about knowing your audience, knowing mm-hmm. who is there beforehand. And 
you know, before we determine who is an expert, who's not, you know, that we kind of vet them a little bit, not necessarily for their knowledge, but for their relationship capabilities, their relationship capabilities, their ability to share that knowledge with people, to effectively communicate what they know and communicate at a level where they're not talking up here because, you know, they're a pharmacist or an engineer and you've got, you know, an entry level person who's like, I don't know. <laughs> like I, you're using words that are this long and I'm here. Right. Don't use graduate school when I'm in eighth grade. Yes. That goes back to exactly what Amanda was talking about mm-hmm. is the clarity of communication. How are we communicating? What words are we using? You know, because I know a lot of people who use the $5 words because that's simply how they talk. And I know others who use the $5 words because that makes them feel smart. You know, so where do you sit on the spectrum? You know, when you think about communication, and I I think that what you're pointing out is spot on. As we get to the top of the hour here, Maureen put in about drawing from the blog about inadequate recognition and rewards. And, you know, yes. And I think, again, know your audience. What does reward mean to them? You know, some people like being in the spotlight, other people not so much. Some people just want a gold star on their way out the door. Some people just want a high five. Do we know what it means to recognize people appropriately? You know, so I think that there is something there. So let's close out the conversation with this comment that Maureen put in there. Somebody want to touch on this? Tom, let's let's go with you. Well, I just, I was looking at it as the exact opposite. I mean, with what we've been talking about with us, we had to get together. uh, We had to put our subject matter experts and our new employees in the same room because of budget restrictions. So you had yourself sitting there, just like Andrew said, you've got some of your people, they're your subject matter experts who are very excited to talk because they kind of feel confident and they're good and they like that they are good at what they do. And you've got the ones who they have the great experience, but they just don't feel like talking. Right. So then you have the people in the class, the new ones. And that was my question more is how do you get those new employees? Because sometimes they don't know what they don't know. They're sitting there reluctant to say anything or just like we talked about, they're afraid to ask a dumb question. You know, even though you say it a million times, there's no such thing as a dumb question. Then how do you get them to to kind of go ahead and bring out the information, which would probably draw the subject matter experts out of the the weeds because kind of beat their chest and kind of show, yeah, I do know that we've got some great, you know, experts. So it's that double-edged sword, you know, because the biggest thing for me though is bringing those new employees into the fold to get them to ask questions because that's part of, that's the biggest reason why we're doing our, my training. So thanks for listening. Well, thank you for bringing that up, Tom. But to your point, I think that that goes to modeling behaviors, right? Yeah. Yeah. So we have to help bring people into the conversation. And we are at the top of the hour. And I think that's a great place to, you know, conclude the conversation. Well, not really conclude it, but put like a dot, dot, dot at the end of this conversation because we'll always do more. And there is, if you want more, and if you want to, you know, join some great conversations, don't forget about the Learning Rebels community, which is up and running right now. And I see that on put the link inside the chat. Thank you for that. Where we tackle things like these conversations in the community, where we have our monthly learning themes, where we take these conversations out to new levels. We ask each other questions. We debate these topics you know, in this space. And I'm really enjoying having this extra space to be able to have some really lively conversations. There was a lot of lively conversation happening last night. It seemed like everybody had coffee or something before they went to bed. It's been really inspiring to have this community of very thoughtful and generous and wise people. So thank you for everybody who is currently part of the community. And I welcome anybody else. Like I said, on put that link inside the chat. And I look forward to seeing you guys all there. Our next chat, as you know, we have these chats for those of you who are new. We do have these chats every other Friday, so not next Friday, the Friday after. However, our next chat will not be 
that Friday. It will actually be that Wednesday. We're going to do a special chat because I'm going to do it from Learning Solutions. So I'm going to be at the Learning Solutions Conference and we're going to uh, do our coffee chat directly from there on that Wednesday. So if any of you are going to be at Learning Solutions, be sure to let me know because it would be great to be able to meet up and maybe we can think of you know, a way to bring the chat in real life together. Wouldn't that be fun? And to kind of do like a little hybrid thing. So if you're going to be there, let me know. And once again, thank you, everybody. I hope you all have a wonderful weekend. Anybody got fabulous plans? I'm doing, I'm going to my tax guy tomorrow. That's not fabulous for me. But if anyone else is doing something fabulous, I'd love to hear from you. What are you doing this weekend? Fleetwood Mac? No way. Katie, really? What's what's the name of the cover band? band? (laughs) It's called Rumors. Um, So I'm really excited about that. I love, yes. And I've heard about them. They're supposed to be really good. Thank you, everyone, for hanging with us for another Learning Rebels Coffee Chat. This was a very meta conversation, a group collaborating about what collaboration should be. There were a lot of ideas bouncing around, and in particular, the thought about how being in a learning environment for some invokes the fight, flight, or freeze reflex, the urge that compels us to act when we are in danger, The mind wants to protect us. We have talked before, specifically during the psychological safety chat, about the baggage a participant carries with them to the classroom. That baggage will also prevent some from actively collaborating because of the fight, flight, or freeze urge. The fear of the unknown is powerful. It can be tough getting out of your comfort zone and collaborating with strangers and peers. Fear is knowing that there is something to lose, the avoidance of pain. What can people lose in a collaborative setting? People may feel that they lose credibility if they say something incorrectly. And for those who work in hyper-competitive environments, there is the real fear of losing the winning hand. This is why setting the stage for acceptance is critical. As discussed, behavior modeling collaboration builds awareness of the expectation. Showing team members the good of what comes from collaboration can be. Being sure to outline appropriate actions and behaviors. If we encourage people to break away from the thoughts like, my idea doesn't count or my idea isn't good enough or I'm not sure this is the right time to share, is really important to setting that collaborative learning stage. So plan to address collaborative barriers before planning your collaborative learning programs is key. And more importantly, L&D needs to set the example. It's time to walk the talk about building a sustainable culture of collaboration. Well, you wanna join us live and you know you do, go on over to learningrebels.com and check out the events page and sign on up. In the meantime, stay curious, be rebellious, and take over the world. Bye for now.